Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to this lecture on CT of the Small Bowel, Principles, Protocols, and Study Optimization. What I'd like to do in this talk is go through some of the basic protocols, how to optimize uh, detection of small bowel pathology, and I'm really going to focus on malignancies and basically tumors in this case. Now, in terms of protocols, really we have two basic options. When we're thinking about doing the small bowel, how do we do the oral and how do we do the intravenous contrast material? Now with oral contrast, depending on the application, positive contrast works very nicely. When we use positive contrast, we use oral Omnipake. The way we mix it at Hopkins is we take a 100cc bottle of Omni 350, put it in a gallon jug of water, shake it up, and that gives us a very nice volume. And it feeds about four patients at 1,000 cc's each, so it's very cost efficient, very easy to make up and it's very, very reliable. And you can see even if you're doing some 3D imaging in this patient with lymphoma with a large mesenteric mass, the positive contrast works very nicely. Now in terms of bowel imaging, if we're looking at cases for routine follow-up of GI tumors, for example, colon cancer, lymphoma, positive contrast works very well, and that's kind of our standard. Other cases, we use water as our oral contrast agent, and that's particularly in cases where you want to look at enhancement, where you want to look at the vasculature, where you want to look potentially at GI bleeding, might be some of the very nice examples. In that situation, we also give 1,000 cc's. We give water over about a 20 to 30 minute period. Uh, we use IV contrast, and I'll come back to IV contrast in a moment. The IV protocols tend to be constant for the most part, regardless of the type of oral contrast we use. And the third type of oral contrast is volumen, which we use fairly infrequently. Volumen was very popular a couple years ago, but its popularity seems to have waned. It's fairly expensive, and patient tolerance is sort of plus minus, and I don't think it adds a whole lot compared to using water or very dilute uh, omnipake. Uh, different protocols, some people use three bottles. We typically have used two bottles followed by water. It's given at 10 minute, 10 minute intervals, and so you start scanning at about 30 minutes. Now the term CT enterography tends to mean a dedicated study of the small bowel, and it's a very important part of what we do across a range of perspectives, whether it's inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease, whether it's suspected GI bleed, whether it's mesenteric ischemia, or whether it's looking for small bowel tumors. And let me focus, just because we have a certain amount of time, on small bowel tumors. Now, when I'm looking at the abdomen, looking at small bowel specifically, I like to do dual phase imaging. I don't think there's a role for non-contrast CT. I don't think there's a need for delayed phase imaging. And this is how we maximize our information while minimizing our dose. Typically, our protocols with 64 slice and beyond will be to use isotropic data sets, thin sections, 0.75 millimeters every 0.5 millimeters. That gives us a very nice overlap when we do the reconstructions. Depending on your scan timing, uh, the protocols will indeed vary. We like to inject basically three three to five cc's, but in fact, we try to always do no less than three, but ideally five cc's per second is our ideal protocol for injection. When we look at images, axial is the start, but routinely we're using coronal and sagittal, and we're doing 3D imaging with volume rendering and MIP. That's our basic protocol. It's not less like occasional cases. That is our protocol.
Now, in terms of distension and detection, one of the reasons why neutral contrast agents like uh, volumen or water work so nicely is a case like this where you see multiple polyps in the patient's duodenum. The polyps are lobulated, they're basically enhancing just a little bit, but you can see them very nicely and you can see them carpeting the patient's duodenum from about the fourth, from about the second portion of the duodenum to near the ligament of trites. And again, you can see the importance of the coronal display, the volume rendering, you really see the extent of disease much better. On an axial image, it's very easy to miss. And I'll show you an example. Do you see the duodenal mass here? Okay, the stomach's well distended, duodenum's well distended. Let me just rotate the images a bit to help you. Look at the duodenum again. Okay, do you see that subtle one centimeter lesion? Let me show it to you again. There it is with the arrow, and let me circle it for you. That's a very subtle lesion. Now you say, well, you show it to me, I see it, but that's because I got the perfect obliquity. It was missed several times. However, if you would have done coronal views in this patient, look how nicely you see the lesion. You see it sitting on the upper wall of the duodenum, very nicely shown there. You can see it with the circles around it, but it's a very flat lesion. The coronal view, that flat enhancing lesion, is so easy to see. 3D imaging, look how nicely you can see the lesion, but you saw in the axials it was so easy to miss. Anybody can pick up a 10 centimeter mass. It's the small lesions where the extra work becomes critical. Now in this case, you wouldn't have done a coronal and sagittal because you weren't suspicious for any findings, but only by routinely always doing that and always looking at the post-processed image will you pick up these subtle lesions. Now, in terms of the surgeons, the surgeons love coronal imaging because that's how they look at things. Looking at hundreds or thousands of axial imaging does not satisfy the surgeons. The surgeons like a volume display, and three-quarters of the surgeons like to see that far better. So let's look then at some specific applications, and let's take something that's very simple, which can be in almost any lecture from the acute abdomen to inflammatory bowel disease to uh, small bowel tumors and that's looking at small bowel obstruction. Well, in terms of numbers, the number one cause of small bowel obstruction these days is adhesions, external hernias is number two, and neoplasms is number three. Well, what do we look at? So when we're looking at the small bowel, we look at the wall thickness. Typically, it's paper thin, it's under three millimeters, probably closer to a millimeter. When it measures over three millimeters, then we're talking about wall thickening. We also look at enhancement. One of the reasons for doing arterial and venous phase imaging is to look at enhancement. Enhancement can be abnormal, being abnormally increased, or abnormally decreased. Even with the same pathology, ischemic bowel, you could see both of those processes. We look for position of the bowel, make sure it's not in a hernia, make sure there's not malrotation, and then we look at secondary science, including the appearance of the mesenteric fat. If you look at the bowel loops, they should be under two centimeters typically. When it's over 2.5, then the bowel loops are dilated. We'll talk about a small bowel feces sign where you have the appearance of intestinal content proximal to a site of obstruction. It's a very good trail to follow to see where the obstruction is, and I'll show you some examples of that. We talk about wall thickening, and we talk about transitions. So if I show you this case, it's a very simple case. Patient has distended small bowel. You can see water was used, nice distension. 
Then when you get down to the second loop of bowel, you see this loop here, and it has what looks like feces or model density within it. That's the feces sign. Now you want to follow that upwards to a transition point because at the transition is where the process is. And sure enough, you look at this first loop of bowel, and you simply see a distended bowel with fluid. You look at this loop, you see the model density, and you follow it right to here. And you see there's a transition point right there? That's where the obstruction is. And you can see I can circle it. Then I'll ask you, what's the cause of obstruction? Well, I don't see an internal hernia. I don't see a mass. There has to be adhesions. And you can see the sharp point that's transitions, and this patient was resected and did fine. What about this case? When you look at the images, the first thing you see in the left upper quadrant is dilated loops of bowel, and you see ascites. Okay, the ascites worries me. Then I'm thinking of ischemic bowel. The other thing is when you look at the bowel carefully, you recognize that that bowel is not enhancing. That means there's no perfusion to that bowel. No perfusion or decreased perfusion and ascites means ischemic bowel. And you look at this, there's a mass effect there. Here it is again in another view. And then sure enough, when you look at the coronal view, you see what you're dealing with. You're dealing with an internal hernia and a mid-gut volvulus. The bowel is twisted on itself. You can very nicely see the twist. You can see the lack of enhancement. You see the distal small bowel is not dilated. You can see how it's tracking upward and twisting. This is surgical emergency. If they get in there early enough, they can reduce that volvulus and not have to resect the bowel. In this patient, it was a little bit too late. The patient had massive bowel dissection. Now, when we look at transition points, there are many different reasons. Here's a patient with nausea and vomiting, and the thought was, why is this patient obstructed? Does the patient have gastric outlet obstruction? Is it duodenum obstructed? And sure enough, when you follow it down, you see at the level of the ligament of trites, there's a mass obstructing. Now, when you're looking at this, you say, well, could this be a duodenal mass? And indeed, that's a possibility. But when you look carefully and you look at the epicenter and you look at all of the images, what you're really seeing is a pancreatic mass which grew into the ligament of trites and obstructed the patient's small bowel. So again, one of the things that CT does very nicely is we can localize the site of obstruction and we can localize, in most cases, the cause of obstruction, which allows for the proper management technique. So let's talk a little bit about small bowel tumors. Small bowel tumors are relatively rare, less than 5% of GI tract tumors. They have a variable clinical presentation and are difficult to diagnose both clinically and radiologically. It's said that from presentation to diagnosis, the average small bowel tumor is found 12 to 18 months after presentation. That means when it's finally discovered, the patient usually has metastatic disease. So early detection often is the difference between cure and metastasis. Now, in terms of carcinoma of the small bowel, there are really four main types, adenocarcinoma, carcinoids, lymphoma, and sarcoma. Over the past decades, the incidence of small bowel cancer has increased with a fourfold increase for carcinoid tumors and less dramatic rises for adenoCA and lymphoma. If you look at the numbers, depending what article you look at, the number one small bowel tumor is either adenocarcinoma or carcinoids, with the other tumors being less frequent. I should also mention that when you speak about malignancy, you need to think about the primary tumors I've listed, but you also need to think about metastasis, and that becomes important. I'll show some examples, but as patients live longer and as other diseases are treated better, patients are now getting new types of metastasis because 
they're living longer, one of them is the small bowel. And I'll show you some examples. When you look at adenocarcinoma of the small bowel, the, the CT appearance is variable. You can see diffuse infiltration of a small segment or longer segment. You can see a polypoid mass, which is small or large. You can see a constricting lesion or a large ulcerating lesion. When you look at adenocarcinoma, it's typically more common proximally. It's associated with certain conditions, sprue, Crohn's disease are all things that have an increased incidence of small bowel carcinomas. We talk about eating fat foods, high fat foods may raise the risk of small bowel cancer. We also talk about familial polyposis, FAP, as an increased incidence of small bowel tumors, though that's a fairly rare problem. Now, in terms of small bowel tumors, you can see presentation is often difficult. Often it's very vague, pain, nausea and vomiting, maybe some weight loss. Once the patient has GI bleeding, tumors are often larger, or sometimes tumors ulcerate early, and that's a good thing. We can find them. But there's often a lack of reliable clinical findings. There's not a whole lot of very specific findings for small bowel tumors beyond things like bowel obstruction, when the tumor intercepts, for example, or if a patient has GI bleeding, or if the patient has symptoms as in a carcinoid-type tumor. So the delay in diagnosis I mentioned is 12 to 18 months. Now, sometimes the delay is because the referring doc, who is often the GP, doesn't think of getting a CT, but sometimes the CTs are gotten and the CTs just do not detect the pathology. As I mentioned, small bowel tumors, unless you're very careful, are very easy to miss. And a couple examples. Here's a very nice case on coronal view at the arrow of a duodenal adenocarcinoma. A little over two centimeters, this was missed several times. Axial views, you see no obstruction. The coronals, you see the asymmetry in the wall pattern. You see the mass. It's very clear-cut adenocarcinoma. Or this case, when you look at this quickly, patient had vague symptoms. It looks okay. Do you see a mass here? Well, what about this region right here in the duodenum third portion? Is this normal or is this not normal? Well, when you look a little bit more carefully, I don't know, maybe it's okay. But it's amazing when you look at the coronal, this is surely not okay. Look at the extent of tumor from second portion of duodenum to ligament of trites, multiple polypoid masses, extremely obvious. But if you didn't look, you would not have seen it. The other thing to note is even with a large tumor like this, there's no obstruction. The patient has no bowel obstruction. When you have obstruction, things tend to be easier. This patient presents with bowel obstruction and distension, and you can see a tumor in the distal ileum. You can see it's enhancing on the 3D, but it's easy to recognize because you're looking at a transition point. So one of the things with small bowel obstruction, I showed you the case of adhesions. This is a good example of following the dilated bowel, dilated bowel downward till you reach the patient's tumor. Now, sometimes you see a big tumor, but you really don't recognize it's small bowel. That probably isn't quite as important. This was referred to us for pancreatic cancer, and I have to admit it does look like pancreatic cancer until you notice there's no real duct dilatation, until you look at the epicenter and you realize you're talking about a very large duodenal carcinoma. Indeed, very, very impressive, but you can see it can be somewhat tricky. You can see we're beginning to see some common duct dilatation. So a lesion of the duodenum can obstruct the common duct because it grows up and involves the ampulla. It's typically not going to involve the pancreatic duct, but just a very nice example. Now, in reality, in terms of resectability, 
Uh, duodenal carcinomas are treated like pancreatic head tumors. They both get Whipple's procedure. So if you went in to do a Whipple's, thought it was resectable, you're doing the right thing. Now, sometimes the tumors are smaller. Look at this two centimeter, barely two cm, duodenal adenocarcinoma, and you can see small nodes nearby. You see the subtle enhancement of the lesion? Very, very subtle. And here it is without those arrows, but now with 3D imaging. Now you really nicely see the mass. Now you can argue, is this a duodenal tumor or is this an ampullary tumor growing into the duodenum? I would say sometimes it's very tricky and sometimes it's hard to make that specific diagnosis, but the treatment is going to be a Whipple's. It's going to be the same. So again, look at these images. Look how important uh, those coronals are, the 3D rendering, and also how subtle the lesions are. There's no obstruction. This patient's a bit easier, nausea and vomiting, the duodenum's distended. You keep looking and you say, okay, what's going on? Fourth portion of duodenum to ligament of trites. You now take this in a patient with abdominal pain and weight loss in coronal view. Now you really see the infiltration. The coronal really shows you the transition point. This is a classic carcinoma. If you had to argue, you can say lymphoma. Unfortunately for this patient who had symptoms for maybe 15 months, take a look at the liver. Now you see multiple liver metastasis. This patient would be unresectable for cure. And you can see the tumor's not that large. It's about five centimeters, but it's in a critical location. Unfortunately, the presentation of nausea and vomiting was somewhat late. Uh, going back, I did see a scan from about six months earlier. The lesion was there, but it was indeed very subtle. Sometimes it's very difficult to see. Now, in terms of obstruction, it's not only tumors, obviously, many things. I showed you adhesions, but uh, obstruction from areas of stenosis, like in Crohn's disease. This is a patient with Crohn's massive bowel distension. Here it is in the coronal view. And when you follow it down, when I read this case and said, okay, look at that terminal ileum, it's markedly thickened, Crohn's disease, this is a stricture, this patient needs to have surgery, right? Because you're not going to manage this patient conservatively, the patient is then set up for surgery, the surgeon operates, there's a stricture, no problem, and then the pathologist a week later comes back and says there's a carcinoma there. Now, I will tell you that there is an increased incidence of adenocarcinoma in patients with Crohn's, particularly in disease segments, but it's a very difficult diagnosis. If I saw nodes or I saw a bulkier lesion, then I would say perhaps the patient has carcinoma and the Crohn's. This is just a good example to show you that sometimes you just can't make the call. I'm concerned about it conceptually, but there's nothing here that makes me think about a carcinoma. I'm simply thinking about a long stricture in the bowel. And the surgeon at the time of surgery palpated the bowel when they resected it. They had no clinical suspicion that the patient had a malignancy present. Second tumor, or first tumor, depending how you look at it in terms of numbers, are carcinoid tumors. And carcinoids have a wide spectrum of uh, variable aggressiveness. They can be indolent, they can be very aggressive, Imaging plays a major role. We are picking up more incidental carcinoid tumors than ever before. The incidence we mentioned has increased over the several, past several decades, more common in women. Typically, patients are in the fifth to seventh decade of life. 60 to 70% of carcinoids occur in the GI tract, with most of the other ones occurring in the tracheobronchial tree. I almost couldn't swallow that word. Um, in the past, we used to think about carcinoid tumors and felt the appendix was the number one area, but new data shows it to be the rectum, followed by small bowel, stomach, and then colon. 
In terms of carcinoid tumors, they're most common in the ileum and least common in the duodenum. Remember we said adenocarcinoma, more common in duodenum, least common in ileum. Average incidence in the U.S. is 1 in 100,000, but it's increasing. It's more common in men and more common in African Americans and lower in Hispanics. Clinical presentation will vary. It may be an incidental finding on CT or endoscopy. Patients can present with full-blown carcinoid syndrome. Those patients typically have liver metastasis. It can present with bowel obstruction or perforation. It can lead to an intussusception, ischemia, or GI bleeding. The location and size of the tumor will all be factors in how the patients present. Now, when you look at the small bowel carcinoids, you can almost put them into several categories. The duodenal carcinoid tumors are unique. They're serotonin, and carcinoid tumors rarely arise uh, with high levels of serotonin. These come from the gastrin-producing G-cells, which result in duodenal gastrinomas, or somatostatin-producing D-cells. Uh, D-cell duodenal somatostatinomas arise in the periampular region and are more common in patients with neurofibromatosis type 1. And I just saw a case yesterday, the patient also had pheochromocytomas bilaterally, so that was an interesting case. On CT, these lesions are small but enhance intensely, both on arterial and venous phase imaging. And they can obstruct the duodenum if they get large enough, but they also can obstruct the common duct and the patients can present with jaundice when they're periampulary in location. The ileal and jejunal lesions, and more common ileal, are the most common site of small bowel carcinoid. Again, it's very common to see masses not only in the bowel but in the mesentery, and when you see the mesenteric mass, it's very common to see a desmoplastic reaction. Up to 40% of these tumors end up being multifocal, and that's very important to remember, and I'll show you a couple examples. When you look at the CT findings of carcinoid tumors, we talk about a primary mass in bowel or in the mesentery. We talk about a desmoplastic reaction around the mesenteric mass. We talk about calcification in about 70% of cases within the mesenteric mass. And we talk about liver metastasis, which classically are hypervascular. Small bowel carcinoids can secrete serotonin, which is metabolized by the liver to 5-HIAA and excreted in the urine. Liver metastases are commonly seen almost always when the patient has carcinoid syndrome, and as I mentioned, the metastases are typically vascular. When you wonder how good is CT for small tumors, this article by Kamari made the point that if you're very careful, you can be incredibly good. CT enterocolysis was positive in 19 patients and negative in 25. The carcinoid tumors found were 5 to 30 millimeters in diameter, so they were small. The tumors were depicted as focal nodular lesions located in the bowel wall or intraluminal polypoid masses with marked enhancement. Their sensitivity was 100%, specificity 96%, negative predictive value 100%, and positive predictive value almost 95%. So very impressive results with a very good dedicated protocol. And he made the conclusion that CT enterocolysis has the potential to be an excellent diagnostic exam looking for small bowel carcinoid tumors, both in terms of detection as well as in terms of staging. So again, you can see that if you're very careful, you'll make the diagnosis. Now, these studies require arterial phase imaging. Not a great surprise. So if you're looking at small bowel, when I'm looking for small bowel tumors, and I don't know what I'm looking for specifically, I'm doing dual phase imaging because if you do a venous phase or a later phase with a carcinoid, you may miss it. Now, when you look at the lesions, they're subtle. 
I mentioned carcinoids are typically distal, but look at this case. Look at the mass in the patient's duodenum right there. It's slightly enhancing, it's slightly necrotic. Here's some volume rendering. You see that mass? You'll say duodenum, maybe it's an adenocarcinoma, though adenocarcinoma is typically not enhanced. Maybe it's a small gist tumor, I guess it can be that, but this was a carcinoid tumor. So carcinoids can occur in the duodenum, and they do occur in the duodenum. Sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's a duodenal mass versus pancreatic. This patient was referred to us for a neuroendocrine tumor in the head of the pancreas, and it kind of looks that way when you look quickly. But then when you start looking at the reconstructed views, you can see that vascular lesion, and you really recognize that it's coming near the pancreas, it's coming from the duodenum, and that was a beautiful example of a carcinoid tumor. Now, sometimes the lesions are small, and, you know, again, this is really why we get paid the big bucks in radiology. You need to find these lesions. So I'm asking you, do you see the carcinoid tumor in the duodenum here? I'm going to circle it for you. You see it right there, and I blinked on it. Did you see that? Again, do you see that small lesion? Well, if you take those axials and you look at the coronals, look how much easier it is to see the lesion. Here you see the duodenum opened up, you see the pancreatic head, and you see that small under one centimeter lesion. Again, this was a carcinoid tumor, it was resected. This patient was symptomatic, which is somewhat surprising, I understand that, but there's the lesion. It's easy to see, but it's also easy to miss. What about this case, looking for a carcinoid? Look at the small bowel. When you look carefully, and initially this was read as negative, but I'm telling you there are multiple lesions here. When you look at the coronal views, and I circled it, look at these multiple small vascular lesions present, and there's also a mass in the patient's mesentery. Classic carcinoid. Now when you go to MIP imaging, look at all of those lesions. So remember I mentioned before that carcinoids can be multiple. This is an example of about 20 carcinoid tumors. They're almost like miliary. There's multiple lesions present. A good point is when you're looking at carcinoid tumors, if you see one, keep looking. Another example, we mentioned the carcinoids are classically in the terminal ileum. Nice example, enhancing lesion, terminal ileum, almost intersuscepting into the patient's cecum. Nicely shown on these images as well, and really nicely shown on the coronal display. Just a very nice example. And then in the image on your right, you see the mass in the mesentery, which is classic with carcinoid tumors. You also see the desmoplastic reaction. I mentioned in mesenteric masses, up to about 70% have calcifications. Sometimes it's dense calcifications, sometimes it's minimal calcifications. Sometimes it helps you. You look at this case, and you see the calcification. It's maybe easy to miss that mass on axial, though in the coronal view, look at the patient's SMA branch, which is encased right there. Look at the mass in the mesentery with that desmoplastic reaction. Just a beautiful set of images. Here's volume rendering in MIP. Look at that mesenteric mass right there, and you see the vessels, all the strings coming off it. Just a beautiful example, also nicely shown on venous phase imaging. Here we have encasement of the SMA, encasement of the SMV, and so this would not be resectable. Another case. Classic example, liver metastasis vascular, mass and mesentery vascular, classic for metastatic carcinoid tumor. 
Again, the coronal views, the 3Ds, the MPRs, all are very helpful. The challenge with carcinoid tumors, of course, is picking up small lesions. So you need to look very, very carefully at the bowel, particularly ileum, but also duodenum, and everywhere looking for small vascular lesions. If not, they're very easy to miss. If you diagnose it early, you avoid this case where you have liver metastasis. Third tumor is GIST tumor, and this is becoming more important, both in the small bowel as well as in the stomach. It's a mesenchymal tumor, gastrointestinal stromal tumor. Usually it's exophytic arising from the muscularis propria, most common in the duodenum when you think about the small bowel, and can present anywhere with symptoms ranging from abdominal pain to GI bleeding to obstruction. Up to a third of these or so are malignant, and malignant risk increases with the extra gastric location, a size over 5 cm, when there's extension into adjacent organs, and the path diagnosis of malignancy is greater than one mitosis for 50 high-powered fields. In terms of some of the demographics, most occur in patient in the 50s and 60s. It's rare below 40. It can be familiar. In those cases, it occurs earlier. The GI symptoms are variable, nothing specific, bleeding, anemia, pain, dyspepsia, palpable mass. Okay, so it's very, very hard to have, it's not very specific as to, uh, to suggest a GIST tumor just based on presentation. These tumors are kind of soft and they're exophytic, and because of that, obstruction is very rare. In one ser series, only one of 61 indeed had obstruction. In terms of the pathology, they arise from the wall of the GI tract and can be characterized as benign, borderline, or low or high malignant potential based on the pathologic appearance. Now, I will tell you when lesions get above 5 cm, all pathologists, even when they think it has benign or borderline or low risk, they'll still say careful follow-up indicated. The vast majority of these lesions express a mutant form of CKIT or CD117. CKIT is a growth factor receptor with tyrosine kinase activity. It's thought that mutations in the CKIT gene are causative for development of GI GIST tumors. And this uh, CKIT is found in both benign and malignant tumors. So we think about the CT findings. Intraluminal when small, it's interesting, when I've seen GIST tumors bleed, they've always been the smaller lesions. They've been intraluminal, they've been brightly enhancing. When I see the large ones, they never seem to be presenting as GI bleeds. Now again, these lesions typically can be exophytic or endoluminal. Exophytic is more common. Ulceration is not uncommon. They usually don't produce significant adenopathy, and 3D is very valuable. Now, one of the things I've mentioned before was just tumor in small bowel, duodenum is number one location. And this is a wonderful case because this was sent, and we've seen a number of these, for a pancreatic mass. Well, when you look fast, it looks like a pancreatic mass, but there's no common duct dilatation, no pancreatic duct dilatation, and it looks really homogeneous. Maybe some unusual pancreatic tumor, perhaps. When you look at the coronal view, you see it pushing on the portal vein, and perhaps it is really pancreas. It's well-defined, no dilated ducts. But when you look at the vessels on the arterial side, the vessels look great. Celiac SMA, GDA, there's no vessel encasement. If this was an adenocarcinoma of the pancreas, you know the vessels would be encased. They'd be infiltrated. So you can see from the arterial and venous side, it's not pancreas. And so what happens is duodenal gist tumors, 
perfect location. Smooth, homogeneous, displaced vessels, arterial and venous, do not invade vessels, can simulate a pancreatic mass. This patient had a GIST tumor. Another example. Here is a patient, unfortunately, with liver mets, but you can see in the left lower quadrant a large mass. It's necrotic. That was a small bowel GIST tumor. Now, what's interesting, GIST tumors are one of the tumors that gives you small bowel to liver, but also when the liver metastasis occur, they're cystic. So we think about ovarian cancer, think about melanoma, think about GIST tumors. Here's another example of a large small bowel GIST tumor with liver metastasis. We have seen several of these in AIDS patients. Another example, the large exophytic nature of the tumor is why the patients presenting so late, they're not obstructed. You can see mottled enhancement, areas of necrosis. Here you can see areas of ulceration. But again, you'll notice this is mainly exophytic, which is why the patient is not obstructed. And here's just a very nice example. When you see this mass, it may be hard to say it's small bowel. Maybe it's a mesenteric mass, maybe it's a desmoid, maybe it's lymphoma. Those are all reasonable things to think about, but when you look carefully, it's really coming from the bowel, but I will have to admit it's difficult. I showed you before examples of just looking like a pancreatic mass. Here's another example. It looks almost like a neuroendocrine tumor. It's somewhat vascular, somewhat necrotic. There's no dilated common duct. There was no dilated pancreatic duct. And here's the lesion. I mean, here's the lesion sitting here. What is this? Is this arising like a paraganglioma? Is this from pancreas? Is it pancreas? Is it duodenum? It can be very difficult. Uh, well, you know, this is going to come out. It looks like a neuroendocrine tumor. This ended up being a GIST tumor. As I mentioned, GIST tumors are not as vascular as neuroendocrine tumors, but they can be vascular and can simulate a neuroendocrine tumor. And just a very nice example on the coronal and the volume rendering. I mentioned when lesions are smaller, they present with GI bleeding. Here's a nice example. But you also interestingly see that the smaller GIST tumors, the ones that I typically see present with bleeding, are also very vascular. So you can see it's easy to pick up on the MIP imaging. What else could you think about? Well, carcinoids are a really good bet. I, in fact, when I read this initially, thought about a carcinoid tumor. It was very vascular, kind of has that look of a carcinoid, but I've only learned about the importance of vascularity in GIST tumors fairly recently, particularly for smaller ones. Another example, here's another lesion, which is a GIST tumor, and it's kind of interesting. This has more of the typical exophytic appearance. And we're lucky with picking it up. It's, it was bleeding, but you can see a very nice example of a GIST tumor, and you can see its relationship to the vessels. And we've seen a number of these present with GI bleeding. So again, if you're looking for GI bleeding, you're doing dual phase imaging, look very closely at the bowel, look for any tumors, okay? Now, occasionally, these will intersusept, and interestingly, in this example, you can see it's only a two-centimeter GIST tumor, but it was intercepting down in the pelvis in the small bowel, and here it is in a coronal view. So almost any small bowel tumor can intersusept. That's true for adenocarcinoma, lymphoma, GIST tumor, metastasis, and benign lesions. Crohn's also causes intersusception. Now, in this case, if I played with the window a bit, you can see very nicely the subtle lesion. It's only about a centimeter, but you can see the vascularity. Again, the differential would have been carcinoid versus a GIST tumor. The fourth tumor I'll mention is GI lymphoma. Site of involvement in order of decreasing frequency in the GI tract, stomach, small bowel, colon, esophagus. They're usually malt-type tumors. 
T-cell lymphomas are particularly prone to bowel wall involvement of the ileum and jejunum. These are aggressive tumors with a higher incidence of bowel perforation. Now, as we mentioned, most primary small bowel tumors are B-cell origin. Most are seen in distal ileum. So again, carcinoid, think distal ileum. Lymphoma, think distal ileum. Adenocarcinoma, think proximal. And their appearance is variable. Infiltration, aneurysmal dilatation, nodular filling defects, single or multiple, and an endoexenteric form. And this is very much a description we had when we did small bowel series. Infiltrative can look very much like adenocarcinoma, so sometimes there is overlap. A couple articles, this article by Thomas, GI tract is the most common extranodal site of involvement in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, with disease seen at some site up to 20% of cases. A couple examples, a range of appearances. Here you see ascites, which is uncommon with lymphoma, but look at the patient's uh, jejunum. You can see the bowel is infiltrated. You can see where I circled it. It's eccentric. You may see small ulcerations present. Tumor is bulky, and there it is nicely shown in coronal view. Could this be a carcinoid? Not really. Could it be adenocarcinoma? A definite possibility. Look at this case. This patient had chest pain, and we found this mass. We didn't see coronary artery disease. We saw a mass involving the patient's right and left atrium. And then when we scanned the patient's abdomen after the cardiac CT, and look at the extent of that tumor in the chest, there you see in the distal ileum an ulcerating mass, a necrotic ulcerating tumor, which was small bowel lymphoma. So sometimes the bowel is not the cause of presentation, it's something else. In this case, the mediastinal component that involved the heart was the problem, and that's how the patient presented. And you can see it very nicely here in coronal view as well. Lymphomas can ulcerate, and because they can ulcerate, they can perforate. These tumors can be very large. Here's another example of a B-cell lymphoma. I thought this might be a GIST tumor, because look how large it is. Look how there's ulcerations. It's growing through the abdominal wall, but it's not really obstructing bowel. Whenever I see lymphoma, usually I'll see some bowel dilatation. GIST tumor, I can see big exophytic lesions without obstruction. I favored a GIST tumor here. But if you look carefully at the coronal views, I should have favored lymphoma, because it's not simply a big mass. It's a big mass due to infiltration of multiple bowel loops, and they're all kind of adherent to each other. I mentioned before that almost any small bowel tumor could intersuscept, but lymphoma is probably the classic, and here's an example of multiple intersusceptions. Let me just speak a moment about intersusceptions. Neoplasms account for about 70% of intersusceptions in adults. Adult intersusception of the small bowel is usually caused by benign tumors, whereas intersusception of the large bowel is usually caused by malignant tumors. But that's not always the case. Here's some of the causes. Uh, in terms of intersusception from Meckel's to cystic fibrosis to tumors, including some of the polyposis syndromes. We talk about malignant causes, adenocyte, lymphoma, metastasis, GIST tumor can do it, as well as celiac and Crohn's disease. When you talk about the intersusceptions, just number-wise, malignant tumors cause 30% of intersusceptions in the small bowel and over 50% in the large bowel. Adenocarcinoma is the most common pathology of small bowel intersusceptions, and we mentioned other malignant causes range from lymphoma to sarcoma to metastasis. And when we talk about metastasis, we're typically talking about melanoma, number one, then lung cancer, breast cancer, and renal cell carcinoma. 
Now, for a while, CT became out of favor because everyone said, aha, capsule endoscopy. We can look at the entire colon, 100% accuracy. The fact is, when you start looking carefully, capsule endoscopy actually had tremendous limitations. And even the people from Stanford who helped develop it, who have the most experience, will say, do CT first. If CT can't find a lesion, perhaps then do capsule endoscopy. The accuracy of capsule endoscopy is in the 50 to 60% range. It is potentially useful in patients with GI bleeding, though CT may be much better and it's quicker. It can easily miss bowel lesions due to improper prep, rapid transit time, and the presence of blood. The other problem with capsule endoscopy, it can't obstruct the patient. This patient presented with a history of a Merkel cell tumor and now had abdominal distension, and we read the scan. We said, oh my goodness, this patient has bowel obstruction with a very large mass. Okay, there's no issue. This is metastatic disease. We told them, well, I don't know how fast messages go, but someone then ordered capsule endoscopy, and guess what happens? When you have a large mass in a capsule, the capsule is going nowhere. And here it is on the coronal 3D images. This capsule was removed surgically. Here it is on the topogram. So you want to be very careful before you do capsule endoscopy. CT also tells you whether you're going to run into any problems, whether you see a stricture in bowel, whether you see obstruction, whether you see intersusception, something that a capsule would be contraindicated for. Now, I mentioned a number, and I've gone through a number of the patient's primary small bowel tumors, but I think one of the things that tends to be overlooked is metastasis to small bowel. And you can characterize these, and this is an article Julie Buckley and I wrote many years ago. There's been very little on small bowel metastasis. We're actually looking at another article now. But the spread can be intraperitoneal, hematogenous, or local extension. Typical sites of origin, melanoma is what I always think about. Lung, carcinoid, ovary, colon are all possibilities. And three big patterns, intraperitoneal, hematogenous, and direct extension. And when you think of those patterns, you have tumors that match. Peritoneal seeding, classic for ovarian cancer, pseudomyxoma peritonei from appendix and colon. Hematogenous mets, you gotta think of melanoma, you gotta think of renal cell. Direct extension, well pancreas, direct extension into duodenum is the most common thing, but also colon cancer and biliary cancer can do it. Here's a nice example of a patient with synovial sarcoma. You see very obvious liver mets and ascites. We see dilated small bowel, and then as we look carefully, we can see the patient has a large intersusception in the right lower quadrant. As we look at the individual bowel loops, we also see multiple enhancing nodules. Look at those multiple nodules. Classic metastasis, very easily seen on the CT. You can see the liver metastasis as well, but again, Water works out to be a great contrast agent, and the lesions are very obvious. Or this case, patient with abdominal pain, history of melanoma, large mass, right lower quadrant, involving the distal small bowel. There's also metastasis in the left side of the abdomen. With melanoma, probably more than any other disease, you see multifocal metastasis, and you can see the one on the left seems to be ulcerating. The one on the right probably has ulcerations as well and is very bulky, and you can see on the sagittal the extent of lesions. Melanoma can be very large and at times can be confusing. Melanoma and lymphoma always are the most confusing things. Look at this case. Patient presents with jaundice, sent to pancreatic conference, felt to be pancreatic cancer, dilated intrahepatic ducts, dilated common duct, there's something by the head of the pancreas, and there's a big mass. 
when you look at it and you look carefully, you didn't see a dilated pancreatic duct. And you also said, this doesn't exactly look like a pancreatic cancer. Kind of, it's just so diffuse and it wasn't obstructing pancreatic duct. Maybe it's a gist tumor. That would be a thought, large mass. I showed you that before. Uh, but could it be some other type of pancreatic mass, some type of funny neuroendocrine tumor was in consideration. Here's a couple more images. And it's really kind of filling in the entire area. It's involving the portal vein and SMV and splenic vein. What is it? Good question. Interesting case, this was biopsy and it was metastatic melanoma. So melanoma can cause all sorts of problems. This was melanoma metastatic to the duodenum simulating a pancreatic lesion, but based on size was causing duodenal obstruction. So hopefully I've covered a number of different things with you. I've showed you the importance of technique. When I'm doing small bowel, dedicated imaging, water may be my best contrast agent, though for other applications, a positive agent like oral omnipaque works very well. CT enterography, which means a dedicated small bowel exam, provides us the opportunity for increased lesion detection and characterization. Scan protocols from the acquisition to display are critical if you want to be very successful. It's easy to miss tumors, as I mentioned, 12 to 18 months from presentation to detection. We can do better than that. We just need to be very careful. There are very few requisitions that come to me rule out small bowel tumor. It may be somebody with weight loss, somebody with vague abdominal pain, vague symptoms, but you gotta be thinking about that in your differential diagnosis and look very carefully at the bowel. And with that, I'll stop there and thank you for your attention.